Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I am doing wonderful, Sarah. I'm in the midst of like multiple days in a row of clinic. I don't know how I let that happen, but somehow that has happened. But I'm still standing and doing well. How about you? I, I'm surviving. It's kind of gloomy out. So it's been like one of those days where I want to sleep all day long. Yeah, it's been kind of cool and rainy the last couple of days. I, I yeah. I don't know, but I think we're supposed to get into summer here just in time for the holiday weekend. I will welcome it. Did you know that today is our 40th episode? I did not know that. That's very interesting information. How did we get to 40? I don't know. I guess people keep listening, so we must be doing something right. I think our guest today has been on about 37 of them. Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not quite that many, but a few. <laughs> Yeah, so today we have Kelly Cockett on. Um, she is our ID unicorn. Yes, she <laughs> is. That was from a very early episode, wasn't it? It was. And Thanks we talked to another, another ID unicorn, that is similar critical care ID person too. But yeah, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to join in. Not, I'm still not sold on the unicorn status, but you know, Whatever, I'll take it. I feel like I need to, for future episodes, get like my daughter's headband that had like the birthday unicorn thing just so I can wear it on Zoom for fun. You should do that. I think they have a video filter that's like a little unicorn. Ooh. Yeah, you know, except the work ones, we don't have good filters on these all the time, but let's see, maybe I can. Ooh, here we go. There you go. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize they had Boy, such things. <laughs> Today, I feel like we have a lot of special episodes. Everything we talk about is special. Um, today, we're going to talk about long COVID. And I believe this will be the, the first part in a two-part series about long COVID. Nice. It certainly is something that I think is very appropriate given um, all the cases that uh, we had locally and in the U.S., uh, especially in the last uh, six months with the Omicron spike. So uh, a lot of people are struggling with it. And I mean, even what is it? What does it mean? How, you know, there's lots of questions, probably more questions than answers still at this point in time. But we're hoping that uh, Dr. Kaka can uh, help us get through some of the confusion. Well, I don't know if I can cut through the confusion, because I think you're right. One of the things that we're still seeing is some debate, right? On what is the right name? Do we call it long COVID? Do we call it post-acute COVID? Is it post-acute sequelae of COVID? Is it something else? And the timeline in which someone qualifies, if you will, for post-COVID has been shifting over time where historically it was at least four to 12 weeks out. And now some are saying, you know, maybe it really is as early as four weeks post initial infection that we start to call long COVID. So I think we have a lot to learn about when we make that transition from acute illness to what is being considered long COVID for the purposes of this talk and for much of the data starting to come up. Yeah, so 
I think that's a really great place to start. Like what exactly is long COVID? I know it's a lot of different things, right? It is. So I think when you or I or anyone thinks about long COVID in the medical world, we want a clean definition of a syndrome, right? We want it to meet criteria X, Y, and Z. And then we can, you know, put our patients into that category box. And I think the reality is that long COVID is extraordinarily diverse and not every patient has anywhere near the same symptoms. And you can see almost any, if not every organ system impacted by long COVID from, you know, cardiac problems to kidney problems to this concept of brain fog and difficulty concentration, concentrating to chronic fatigue, to just a variety of multiple different types of symptoms that manifest differently in different people and may have an onset at different periods of time in the course of this long COVID syndrome based on when they had their acute infection. And I think the other part that makes it hard to wrap your head around is the fact that you don't have to have had severe COVID, right? So you don't have to have been in the hospital or in the ICU. Certainly there are some risk factors around that to having prolonged symptomatology. But even a mild to possibly asymptomatic illness has triggered long COVID in some people. So when we're talking about this, so you, you mentioned several things in there, the, the acute COVID infection. So that's what we typically think about with the, the cough or the sore throat, the, 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 for lack of a better term, kind of the flu-like illness or cold-like illness that people frequently have. Now, obviously, people can have more severe disease. And is it still appropriate to say that most people kind of maybe are sick and they get over this in a matter of a few days like they would any other illness? But then these people that you're talking about with long COVID, they maybe either don't recover or develop new symptoms after they get through this initial uh, episode. Yeah, so I think you have a combination of those things. So some people actually do have kind of lingering symptoms that transition into this long COVID phase. There are some reports of people who had very minimal symptoms and then develop newer symptoms as part of their long COVID. Now, whether that was unrecognized at the time of their acute illness or whether it manifested farther in time, I think we don't understand in full yet. Um, but certainly there is a variation in how this presents and whether everybody truly has all of those symptoms at the time of their acute infection or not. For instance, if you just take something like the reports of having substantial hair loss with long COVID, if you have a viral infection or any infection, it can infect your hair, your skin, your nails, you know, all kinds of um, building blocks in your body can essentially be impacted by that acute illness, right? As it is your immune system is trying to recover you know, manage that illness, but hair doesn't fall out right away necessarily. So some things like that may be farther out and it can be really confusing both for patients, but also for healthcare workers to have someone who comes in complaining of something like hair loss three months out from their COVID syndrome, and they may not connect the dots that they're potentially related. And so I think that just adds another layer of complexity, both for us to recognize it and for others to report it to their healthcare workers or realize that it may be they should talk to someone about some of their symptoms. And to your other point, how many people really get it? So the most recent literature I've seen 
um, there's two numbers. One is the estimate that one in 10 patients who've had a COVID-19 infection will have some kind of symptomatology of long COVID. More recent data that I saw um, actually was suggesting up to one in five. So we're talking about really common, um, when you think about the number of people who have had COVID-19 in the country and in the world, now, the severity of those symptoms will vary hugely in long COVID. So not everybody is necessarily coming to care, or again, like I mentioned, having their symptoms recognized. And that's part of why it is so hard to understand how many people are really suffering from long COVID at this point. So that sounds like a number between five and 20% roughly that could have something ongoing. Do they know, is this still related to virus sticking around and people not being able to clear it? Or is it an immune response that's you know, causing this problem or an immune dysregulation or something? Have we gotten to that point where there's theories on what's going on? There are, and I'm gonna go with the fact that you're probably reading about them yourself by hitting those things, right? So I think there are um, right now probably three primary theories about what happens. One is the idea of direct and indirect viral impact, right? So the virus causes an infection, it directly uh, infects the heart, the heart develops um, different pathology related to that and the patient suffers different symptoms. You know, indirectly, you could see the development of immune complexes and the immune complex and immune complex deposition may cause some of the long COVID syndromes. So those two, the indirect and direct viral um, impacts seem to come together a little bit in one of the theories. There's another theory that much like HIV or our herpes viruses like HSV, VZV, you know, EBD, CMV, any of these viruses that have long-standing reservoirs in the body, that in fact, this virus may have long-standing reservoirs in people who suffer from long COVID and that we are not recognizing that yet. And the innate immune system is unable to clear that reservoir. So the immune system may continue to respond to active virus and contain it in a place, but not actually be able to get rid of it. So it may continue to drive pathology. And then I think the third theory that is really out there um, about this is this dysregulated immune response. So when we talk about sepsis, when we traditionally talk about that from bacterial infections, we think about having dysregulated host responses to infection that cause all kinds of coagulation and immune and you know, complement cascade triggering events. And the checks and balances in our human body don't balance each other out. And in that dysregulation, you can see different end organ damage and long-term symptomatology in sepsis. And there is definitely concern that COVID is causing that dysregulated response, even in the absence of some of the other markers we would have historically looked at acutely for sepsis. Along with that, in that dysregulated immune response, it may also cause some immune mimicry where it actually transitions over to an autoimmune response to native human cells where the virus starts the response and then our body no longer tells difference of friend and foe and starts attacking you know, our own organs and causing those kinds of responses. Um, again, tons of research going on on this to really try to nail down, is it one of these? Is it all of these? Is it different in different people for some reason? and really trying to understand that so that we can hopefully be better prepared to A, 
explain this to our patients and understand it, but also look for treatments that are really more targeted to the right response for long COVID. Well, it sounds like the information on long COVID is just as complex as the information on COVID-19 itself. It just keeps changing and we keep throwing on more layers, don't we? Right, when you think about it, right? I mean, we had all of this fast and furious information come about on acute COVID as we were learning about it, as we were first seeing it, and we didn't recognize long COVID right away. So, you know, we're a year or two behind the research on long COVID compared to acute COVID. And it, because again, of the complexity of it, it's hard to see. And there's also still a lot of issues related to social determinants of health, access to care, bias that really impact people with long COVID getting seen in healthcare settings by people who are going to recognize those symptoms as long COVID. There's actually a great article that I read um, that referred to this as missing the tail of the beast. So if you think about the pandemic, the head of the beast is the acute COVID infection. Everybody's focused on it. Everybody's trying to prevent the bite and the lethal strike of the head of the beast. And you forget about the fact that the tail carries it just as much you know, lethal component with it if it swings back. And long COVID really is that in the healthcare sector. If we have millions of people suffering from long COVID, how does healthcare in this country, let alone anywhere, get all of those people the care that they're going to need in the long term? And that becomes the next piece that really I don't think we have great answers for as we come out of the acute phases of this pandemic hopefully out of the acute phases of this pandemic as we see the roles of variants come through. And obviously this underscores um, what a lot of people have been saying all along that uh, the thoughts of getting this infection in order to get through this and get herd immunity, there's, there's unknown consequences, at least going back in time and still even now and going forward to actually getting the vaccine or getting the, uh, the illness versus getting vaccinated or protecting yourself with masks and social distancing and everything else. So this is a good example where, you know, just trying to go out and get it is, is not the right answer probably. Right, and it is complicated because going out and getting COVID-19 puts you at more risk for disease and vaccination does play a role in prevention of transition to long COVID. It actually has a potential role even in alleviating symptoms of long COVID in those who are unvaccinated. But it doesn't guarantee that someone doesn't develop symptomatology of long COVID after an acute infection. And it just adds to the distress and the confusion surrounding COVID, vaccines, treatments for COVID, you know, innate versus um, vaccine-induced immunities and how to explain all of this in the ongoing rapid speed evolution of data and information that's just continuing in this pandemic. Is the data that you quoted earlier on the long COVID, is that, has that been broken down into unvaccinated and vaccinated? Are we that granular yet or is it just too, too new to know? There's definitely some data on it. I think the problem honestly has been that because of the bias of um, reporting to healthcare of who has symptoms, it's a little hard to gauge the vaccine data against long COVID as reliably perhaps as we would have liked when we do it from a retrospective cohort standpoint, because the people who come in are either the sicker patients or the ones who have clear access to care. And that may not necessarily represent everyone 
who has symptoms, nor certainly does it represent those who may or may not have received vaccines. So there, there is some data out there. I just think we have to take it with a grain of salt, recognizing the innate biases in that kind of study at this point. I think you bring up a lot of great points and all that. There's so much to talk about. Um, one of the things I wanted to hit on was access to care and how this is affecting our healthcare systems. Um, I know you touched on a little bit, you know, we're still fighting the acute COVID part of the pandemic. You know, we're, we're bracing for another wave that's happening right now through all of these different variants. But have you seen an increase um, in stress on the healthcare system from those long COVID patients outside of the acute COVID? So there are certainly differences in access to care because acute COVID, when we've talked about access to care, although there's a lot of ambulatory access issues with home tests and more easily available prescriptions, it is not as difficult in the ambulatory setting to manage acute COVID as it was a year ago. The access to inpatient care tends to be more of the driver for access to care when we talk about that with COVID um, in many circumstances, of course, not all, right? Long COVID is really an ambulatory outpatient healthcare access difference. And, you know, if you get really sick with acute COVID and you don't have insurance, you can go to the emergency room. And with Entala, we're not going to turn you away. You're coming in. We're going to take care of you. You know, we're going to deal with those issues later. In the ambulatory setting, you, you're not going to go to the emergency room, you know, if you feel like you have brain fog, right? You're not going to go to the emergency room if you're just extremely fatigued and you're not sure why necessarily. And so when you think about access to care in that setting, now we have a different problem. We don't have as much ambulatory care. Outpatient primary care has been limited in this country for a long time and has been a problem with access. And in addition, if you have cardiac or pulmonary or neurologic issues, getting in to see a subspecialist is limited both by access and long wait lists, but also geographic and socioeconomic determinants that matter because many of those specialists are you know, really in urban settings. So if you go to rural Nebraska, you may not have access to a specialist with expertise in this who can help you without traveling. So there's a lot of issues, both on insurance, cost of care, access to care in your language, trust of the healthcare system, and then just the geographic discrepancies that happen to where specialists and care providers are who can render opinions and have enough experience with post-COVID to work through that with the patients. So you mentioned that multiple organ systems might be involved and people have complaints over all of them. And obviously we're not gonna probably be able to mention everything that might've happened, but what are some of the more common things that people have had issues with that, that, that could fall into the post-COVID? You mentioned brain fog as one of them and, and fatigue or, or something is another, but what, what else have you uh, seen being reported? So, I mean, obviously there's still a large number of respiratory symptoms, right? With, chest tightness, some will complain of cough, some will also have just shortness of breath or shortness of breath on exertion, um, heart palpitations and heart rhythm problems and chest pain from that perspective. Um, we've seen patients who've had different prolonged joint pains, muscle pains, neuropathy type symptoms. Um, there's a lot of um, literature evolving about patients getting autonomic dysfunction with POTS-like syndromes. Um, secondary to long COVID. There's a 
large uptick in patients with acute kidney injury, likely transitioning to some level of chronic kidney disease in the long COVID realm. And then there's other just harder, you know, to delineate memory impairment issues, issues with focus, um, increased mental health concerns between anxiety and depression. And so I think, you know, those are all things certainly they're seeing, but I think there's a lot of respiratory symptoms. There's a lot of brain fog, cognitive mental health related symptoms. Um, and there's a fair number of patients complaining of POTS-like syndromes or other kind of tachycardia syndromes. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that are in that list that it doesn't sound like we have a blood test for or a imaging test that can tell you something on. So that probably contributes to trying to figure out a way to make a diagnosis. It, it just requires a lot of data gathering and, and, and a lot of conversations around those things and coming to some kind of a consensus, right? Right. There are some guidelines um, that are living guideline documents. So there are nice guidelines from the UK on long COVID. There are other on management and how to work it up. Essentially, long COVID symptoms are a diagnosis of exclusion in many ways, right? So you need to make sure if someone is really fatigued or, you know, having other, you know, cardiac issues, someone needs to make sure that they don't have a thyroid problem or they're not having atrial fibrillation, right? Because those may or may not have anything to do with long COVID. So we can't just assume someone had COVID, therefore, whatever they have is long COVID. We still need to do thorough evaluations, you know, and kind of really hone in on those early days of training when we did the best H&Ps and workups ever on our patients to make sure that we're ruling out other conditions. And then if we don't find something else, then yes, maybe you can attribute that to long COVID. And hopefully we will have better tests that help us delineate that in the future, but there certainly are no specific, I can prove this is long COVID in you tests right now. At least not that I'm aware of. I'm not aware of any either. You guys need to get to work. No doubt. <laughs> so I know COVID-19 affects different people differently. So you can have a, a perfectly healthy person with no other risk factors get severe COVID and potentially pass away from it. Um, is long COVID the same? Are you seeing a high, uh, a high rate of people that didn't have any other health problems are now starting to have some chronic conditions from it? So I think there were, it depends on how you define chronic, oh, okay. right? Yeah. So what is long COVID and how long does it last versus what is really a chronic medical comorbidity that's not going to get likely to get better or in which you're looking at years and years of symptomatology. So there is some data that people, you know, with long COVID may start to improve over kind of nine to 24 months more and more with their symptoms, sometimes earlier. Um, so I think that's very definition-based, honestly, on how you define those phrases. Do people have medical issues that persist and last for months to years? Yes, there are certainly scenarios in which that is the case. Um, as far as who gets them, you know, there's evolving literature on who was highest risk. We mentioned severity of disease. We know that obesity has carried a risk. Um, there's increasing data from a cardiac standpoint about if you had underlying cardiac disease, you may be at higher risk 
because the virus creates increased inflammation in the body. And if you already have inflamed you know, coronary arteries, that may tip the scale towards more likelihood to see um, you know, a heart attack or something else happen from that perspective. Um, there is some data that women are more likely to have long COVID. The problem with that data is that women were also more likely to survive COVID acute infections. So there's a survival bias in that data, and it's a little unclear if their risk factors are true risk factors for long COVID or really survival bias of who survived it, and we have data on. So th there are some issues regarding that that I think are really make that data still something that's an evolution for us to understand more. Yeah, all very interesting. And if, if I may ask, I think both of you had your own personal struggles with COVID and some post-COVID symptoms. So if you guys wouldn't mind just kind of talking about your experience, I think that would help shed a little bit of light on what um, you know people have really experienced rather than just looking at what's reported on the CDC or in some journal. Who do you want to go first? Doesn't matter, whoever wants to talk. <laughs> Okay, well, um, so I had got COVID last September. Um, I, it was not a severe case, so I didn't end up in the hospital, even though I felt like I was dying. I got the Delta strain and it was pretty awful for a few weeks. Um, I fully recovered after that. And about a week after Christmas, I started having heart palpitations. And they, you know, first I thought maybe it was my anxiety and then they just didn't go away and they were keeping me up at night. And so I went into, um, emergency care and they told me I had post COVID arrhythmia. So I had to go in to see a cardiologist. Um, I'm really lucky that I had access to care just because of my geographic location and where I work, I was able to get in fairly quickly and still kind of fighting it, so. What kind of uh, testing and things did you have to go through and sort of working this up and how long did the whole process take, uh, you know, and, and how much, you know, life, work, et cetera, do you think you missed because of this uh, uh, adventure with your post-COVID uh, tachycardia syndrome? Well, it probably worked more than it should have. Um, but I will say that during those, those few months, I didn't have the greatest quality of life. I was extremely fatigued, um, had the brain fog, memory problems. Um, and I'm also a single mom with three kids. So like, I, I have no help at home. You know, I still have to feed them, go to the grocery store, pick up the kids from karate, all that other stuff while I'm just feeling awful and crummy and having these heart palpitations. Um, through the course of trying to figure out what was going on, I had um, a few ECGs, um, a sonogram in my heart. We did a Holter monitor twice. One was for 48 hours and one was for 24 hours. And I have been on two different medications. Yeah, so that sounds like quite a bit. Yeah, it was a lot. I'm finally starting to feel better. Like I'm starting to get some of my energy back. Um, I don't know if any of our listeners could tell on the podcast when I was really feeling crappy. <laughs> <laughs> and how many months ago was this again that you had acute COVID infection? It was last September. So we're what, oh. 
nine, 10 months out. Yeah. Yeah. So long, long time. Uh, what about you, Kelly? Yeah. So um, I guess in a somewhat similar vein, I ended up with cardiac issues. Um, so I, to the best of our knowledge, I had um, Omicron after my son got sick, um, despite, you know, wearing masks himself all the time, um, came home sick. He, you know, it was like sneezed three times and I tested him and he turned positive. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just... <laughs> ID doctor in us, right? <laughs> well, you know, you're just like, ah, we got to figure it out. Right. Um, so unfortunately, everyone in our house um, got it, which was, was extremely common with Omicron, right? Like we saw that even amongst vaccinated, boosted healthcare workers, which everyone in our house was. And I actually um, tested positive on a Friday morning and it was um, Sunday and I was sitting there making um, breakfast for my daughter and I was really not feeling well. Um, and so there had been some, I had gotten quite sick very quickly with being really short of breath. And although it was not hypoxic and was not tachycardic initially, and then um, suddenly had sudden onset of presyncope. I had raging heart palpitations that were very irregular. I almost passed out. And I went and checked my oxygen level. We get an oximeter at home. I checked my heart rate, which was going up into the 130s and looked irregular um, and ended up in the emergency room, be, you know, getting ruled out for um, PE because I had a lot of acute inflammatory markers that were positive, including like my D-dimer and everything else. So did not have an acute like heart attack or PE. Um, but ended up also doing a Holter monitor for 48 hours from home and then um, had an echo, had talked with cardiology also. And um, the problem that I actually ended up with, um, which started in that acute illness from that onset, was that when I slept, I would get very bradycardic down into the 30s to 40s. But when I woke up, as soon as if I tried to stand, walk, my heart rate would go from that to about 130. And in the win that window of time, I would be extremely lightheaded. So I wouldn't be able to get up and move. Um, so we had a lot of discussions about whether I was developing POTS, which was really unusual in an acute setting versus having an inappropriate tachycardia syndrome, which is ultimately what we believe happened was that I ended up with an acute COVID related inappropriate tachycardia. Um, but it, um, has lasted for a very long period of time. Treating it was difficult because of the low heart rates that I had. So I ended up having to um, upgrade my Apple Watch to have different ECG monitoring. So if I felt the differences, we could track my heart rate over time. And you know, over the course of about eight weeks, I started to be able to walk more. There was a period of time where I couldn't walk to my kitchen table from my room without having to um, sit down and lay down. Um, we had me on a very high Every morning I was drinking like two liters of a very high salt solution to try and keep my blood pressure and heart rate up and stay hydrated um, and had to do essentially like slow physical retraining to be able to walk and come back on hospital service. And um, actually just in the last few weeks, I was able to walk miles under 20 minutes a mile for the first time in over two months two and a half months, three months now, I guess, maybe even, <laughs> um, because I couldn't, I couldn't walk a mile. I had been walking three to four miles and I couldn't walk a mile. Um, 
And I certainly, and when I first did my first ones, I couldn't get walk a mile in um, under 30 minutes because I would get so winded, lightheaded, short of breath, so tachycardic. So it's it's been a long haul. I still um, have occasional episodes with it. I have to be careful about staying really hydrated. I carry solutions with me if I need to manage it um, acutely still, although it's less and less often than I need to. Um, but definitely not back to baseline levels of um, physical exertion or endurance or anything like that yet. It's been a very, very slow process to come back to. And you said you uh, believe you had Omicron. So that would have been uh, January, February-ish when you probably had acute infection. So it was the middle of February. Um, yep. So the, the caveat in there is that my daughter likely had Delta end of December, beginning of January. And then six weeks later, Omicron came through. Um, and based on the testing that we had done on her, um, you know, as far as I know, I never had a Delta infection, um, but she probably had both. So there's a possibility I ran too tight together and that's part of why I got so much sicker and had more issues, but presumptively Omicron was the insult to the heart. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah, you too, right? There's, I mean, there's nothing yeah. worse than, you know, wanting to be able to show up and do all the things um, and function the way you want to and need to. And, you know, you just can't. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Um, and I think when we were talking about access to care, I think we're pretty lucky that we have access to care and we're able to get, find out what the problem is. There are so many out there that maybe don't have insurance or a vehicle to get to a doctor or even anywhere close that they can go. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah, I remember both of you being ill when you had this and then uh, the struggles that you guys had after this. So thank you for, for sharing this. And you do bring up an interesting point. Both of you are very sure on your timeline on what variant you might have had. And, and I'd be curious, have, have we noticed any changes with uh, long COVID or frequency of long COVID with the different variants? Obviously, some of them are more contagious. Some of them seem to cause more severe disease than others. Um, but the virus, you know, obviously is not exactly the same as it was when this started. Um, and you know, we didn't hear about long COVID a lot in 2020, which doesn't mean it wasn't there. We just didn't know. But um, is this evolving? Uh, uh, do we know anything about that? Honestly, I don't know that we have great data. There's huge studies going on right now trying to go back and reevaluate long COVID patients in much larger coordinated cohorts to try to get a better understanding of the differences in presentation and timeline. Um, I am not aware of great studies that really have been kind of landmark, large enough studies to really answer that question. I am sure there are studies out there looking at it, um, but I think these large cohorts that are really coming out, I hope we'll really be able to answer that um, more effectively. And in some of those cases, they may be able to go back if they were PCR tested at an organization and actually answer what was the variant at the time. It'll be really interesting to see because obviously there's other coronaviruses that have been around that we've known about for you know years um, that cause common cold typically right, and so 
how is this one so different um, than those uh, in terms of how either, you know, those things that you talked about, whether it, uh, it sticks around and directly impacts these organ systems or somehow has something to do with the immune system that's obviously different than the other coronaviruses. I mean, they cause colds. We get a cold, we get over it, then, but we lose our immunity to them and we can get it again and again and again. But what's different about COVID? I think we all really want to know. <laughs> I know. I mean, right? Like we we've not talked about coronaviruses having persistent human reservoirs. Mm -mm. I mean, that's just not been a, a thing. And we've talked about viral sepsis before. So there's been some discussion about that. There's been discussion about viruses causing, you know, being a trigger for autoimmune issues or other pieces. So I mean, those pieces are, I think, are a little easier to understand. I think that. And the, in, the direct viral implication, I think, is fairly easy to understand. The question of is there a persistent reservoir that we can't clear, I think, becomes extremely interesting because that would make this, as far as we know, very different from any of the uh, cousins in the coronavirus family, if you will. Yeah, and I don't know that we've had this big of a reservoir of, of people, humans getting infected in a short period of time that we've been able to study something like this as intently um, and uh, in the depth that we're going to be able to look at this. Right. I mean, even in our you know influenza pandemics in the past, we haven't had this many patients and we just really haven't had the same long-term complication question to which people are continuing to study it, you know, aggressively post-acute infection. So as you guys have said, uh, you guys had, um, you know, access to care and knew kind of who to talk to and who to call and everything if you have um, symptoms that you were concerned about. What, where can the public kind of get information about this? Is there places that they can call? Should they just start with their primary care doctor if they have one? Is their primary care doctor going to know much about this at this point in time? Or do they need to kind of go to a place that maybe is looking at this, uh, you know, an academic medical center or something where maybe they can get into research trials so that we can learn about this? Um, so I think yes to all of the above at some level, right? So I think... Um, there are references out there for patients. There's actually a lot. So there are long COVID support groups on social media platforms. There's information you know, on websites from the CDC. A lot of academic centers are continuing to post information. And frankly, it's been in the lay press just so much with updated data and what's happening with long COVID. But I think there are ample, reliable sources in which you can get information about long COVID. Our NeTech um, group from this organization, also, you know, has a podcast that they also did specifically a little bit on long COVID. Um, and they have put out additional resources in addition um, from that team. So I think there's great places to go for information. As far as, you know, do you go to your primary provider first? I think for most patients, that's what they do. Reason being, you need to make sure that it really isn't something else first, right? You want to be seen and be evaluated. And for those providers, you know, I, I think that most people in healthcare recognize that there is a thing called long COVID at this point. And I think there's, you know, a few kind of key steps, right? You need to recognize when patients are reporting symptoms, even if they seem a little vague and maybe two years ago, you wouldn't have worried about brain fog so much. You would have been like, you know, get some more sleep, eat better exercise, kind of these standard things that maybe weren't always the best advice 
um, as opposed to further evaluation, but we're very common. So, you know, recognizing that symptoms are serious and need to be evaluated, even if they seem a little vague, assessing for new medical problems and doing a really thorough workup and not making assumptions, and then referring people, you know, for further evaluation. If you're not finding an answer or you find something and you're not sure, is this COVID related? Is it not? What do I do with it? And in that referral capacity, hopefully, you know, you can get people treated in that specialized care center. And a lot of patients, because of this variety of symptoms, really need individualized care plans and individualized rehab plans to get them back to their long-term goals of quality of life. When you're trying to look for places to refer to, you know, here in Nebraska, there are, you know, increasing places that have um, long COVID clinics. Nebraska Medicine does have one in which um, you can call in and be referred in. And then there's an evaluation process to determine, you know, if you're appropriate to come into the clinic um, and what that looks like. And they explain that to you. I know for more severe cases, especially those coming out of an ICU, our Madonna Rehab Clinic has um, a post-COVID clinic also, or a long COVID clinic also, that's run by our PM&R um, group primarily, who's had a lot of experience with post-ICU related syndromes also that can um, really have a lot of overlap for some of these patients. You know, otherwise, you know, for listeners who may be outside of the immediate area, you know, you might have to look for a post-COVID clinic or ask your, you know, primary care provider, who can I go to? Where can I be seen? I will say a lot of the post-COVID clinics are not, are accepting patients, even if they're not someone who has a primary care provider within that normal referral network. So even if you don't have a primary care doctor, which we would want everyone to have, but if you don't, which we know is still a problem here, it doesn't mean that you can't get into a post-COVID clinic if you need to be seen. So I shouldn't, you know, at least from that standpoint, um, there's more opportunity there. But yes, I think they're more likely to be found in areas with larger um, medical density of experts, including specialists. They're more likely to be found around the academic centers who are doing research in this area. And again, you're still gonna have disparities in healthcare, both socioeconomically, um, geographically, right? Those are still gonna be issues even in that setting. Yeah, and this is something that if you do think you have post-COVID or some, uh, you know, syndrome or any kind of symptoms or anything like that, actually coming in and being part of information gathering is going to help us help others for the future as we get more information right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, trying to get plugged in and being evaluated, you know, and we encourage people, a lot of the research that's happening right now is really just data gathering. There's not as many specific treatments, although for some things there are but really being able to understand the process and the disease and to learn more and more about it so that we can be better and do better going forward. Do you guys know if there is any sort of financial assistance for people for any sort of long COVID treatment? I know, you know, there's a lot of appointments and specialists and tests and all of these things that you have to do and it can get really expensive. I don't think that's an easy answer with a singular yay or nay. Um, you know, there had been federal COVID funds that were allocated out um, that have been allocated both, you know, to different states and different healthcare facilities, but also to help cover patient costs. Um, 
it is somewhat unclear how much of those are left or if anything will be renewed to still be applied in addition to long COVID. Um, but there are a lot of other options to get healthcare and to work within um, a social work clinic. So like I know, for instance, when we were talking about setting up the clinic here, we talked about what it meant to have social work engaged. We talked about what it meant to have immigration lawyers engaged for the patients who do not have citizenship in this country who are here. Um, we talked about, you know, how to get access to care or, you know, cost reduced or free medications and what programs we could help people apply to and do it in their language, right? We talked about access to care for people who work shift work and can't come in eight to five to a clinic appointment. Um, so I do think that there's a lot of efforts being put forward to try and help patients based on their individual need when they arrive, that may be of concern. So again, it would be something that, you know, patients can call into clinics, they can ask those questions. They should call it, they should be able to talk to a social worker if that clinic has one before they're even seen to understand what those costs may be and how they may be able to help offset that. But I think the cost of not being able to function or work, right, is also a very heavy indirect cost. If you can't, you know, continue with your livelihood and your quality of life and your daily living that you need to do. Um, it may seem indirect, but it's still relating to, you know, loss of wages and productivity for many of these people who have to leave early, take days off because they're not feeling well and they haven't been able to get care yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, great discussion, guys, and thanks again for share, uh, sharing your stories. Uh, I think there's definitely a powerful message in there about um, how this can impact uh, otherwise healthy young people and, and significantly impact their health and derail you know, several months of your life before you get feeling like you can be a productive member of your team again and your family again and everything else. So I, I think that's vital. Anything else that you guys have to, to say today that we haven't discussed so far? No, I, I think, you know, it's just really important to realize, I think it's striking when you look at the graphs of the percentages of people who've had COVID-19 at different age groups, right? So, you know, reports of up to 75% of Americans, you know, up to age 17 and, you know, 50 plus percent of Americans of ages 18 to 64. And you take that number of people and you, even on the low end, say one in five, one in 10 are going to have symptoms of long COVID. It means that it doesn't matter what you do in healthcare, you're going to encounter long COVID and recognizing how important it is and validating that for patients to understand that this is hard, but it's real and that's okay, um, becomes I think extremely important. And in some scenarios, maybe a bit of a mental shift for some healthcare workers where some of those more ambiguous symptoms may not have been as recognized or validated historically. Agree. Agree. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for joining us. And uh, again, for sharing your story, Sarah, thank you for sharing your story as well. Um, if anybody has questions or stories that they want to share about this, we certainly would be glad to, to listen to them and, and post them on uh, 
social media or whatever. Sarah is very good at checking that. And we certainly can get you if you need some kind of help on finding where you might be able to go for concerns or something like that, we can try to direct you in some of those directions if, if that's something that you need. So please reach out. Yeah, absolutely. We would love to hear from anybody out there on their experiences or if they have questions. And thank you once again, Kelly, for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Happy 40th podcast. Yay. Yay. Woohoo. Always to have like <laughs> black party hats. <laughs> I think we need to buy her a unicorn hat that she can wear in her office, though. We should do that. Yeah. We can find it maybe at like Party City or something like that if they still oh, have it. Oh, no, we stores. should get it like a really nice one. Like, I'm sure somebody on Etsy makes unicorn hats that are like super cool. I'm not sure I know what Etsy is, but I could find one on Amazon probably. <laughs> You've got some other learning to do now. Yes. Gotta <laughs> work on that. I will, I will check out Etsy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And for all of our listeners out there, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and be a part of our conversation. And we will catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.